I wanted to show During the Christmas season, we celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, our God who chose to be with us as the ultimate expression of his uncontainable love, a love that demands to be present, a love that is here with us. This week, I have the privilege of being with some of our amazing Alliance workers, hearing stories of how God is on the move, and there is more work to be done. There are still people who have not heard the good news that God is with us. It was God's love that established His presence among us and fuels our motivation to extend His presence among those who have yet to experience His love. We want to invite you to be a part of that through the Alliance's Christmas offering. When you give, you mobilize the body of Christ. The Alliance has nearly 2,000 U.S. Alliance churches and over 700 international workers in 140 cities around the world motivated to fulfill our vision of all of Jesus for all the world. When you give, you are extending our Emmanuel's witness among the world's overlooked, oppressed, on the move, and all who remain without access to the good news of great joy. So this Christmas, as you consider what impact you'll make through your giving, we want to invite you to spread the good news of Emmanuel, that God is with us. Love is here. And so love is here is the theme for this Christmas season, um, this Advent season, this, this season of, of uh, with the Alliance and uh, one of the things they do provide, if you guys would love a Advent devotional to be able to utilize, uh, they are on the back table. Um, so I printed off about 15 packets. If we need more, just let me know, and we will print out more. Um, I'll have more information concerning what is happening in the Alliance in terms of this Christmas offering. Um, but the reason it fits is because today we're going to... Um, I guess talk about a, a Advent theme, uh, but ne- not necessarily a Advent themed message. Um, we're going to continue in our Acts series, and while I was wrestling whether to do an Advent themed message or just continue, um, this morning's message and even next week's just fits within the Advent idea and the Christmas idea, um, because today we're going to talk about generosity and. You know, you hear often, right? We're in a season of what? Giving. You know, the Christmas season is about giving and about being generous. Um, but what I want to talk about today is something that goes deeper than just a season of generosity. I want to talk about a life of generosity. Um, and, and I want to look at the early church and what the early church did. Um, and I just felt that it was fitting. Because as we talk about uh, Advent, which is the anticipation of Christ's coming, and we're looking forward to that, we get to look forward to celebrating on Christmas uh, Christ's first coming, his birth, right? But as believers, we know from the beginning of Acts chapter 1, what? That Jesus is coming back. And so Advent is not necessarily just the celebrating of Christ's birth, but it's the anticipation of his second coming, of his coming back. But what is awesome, and I'm so thankful that we have a God that, that is sovereign, is that God sees our needs. God sees exactly what we need. And when sin came into the world, he saw a great need, which was a way to pay for that sin, a way to, to, to remove the power of sin, a way to defeat the power of death, because when sin came into the world, what? Death came into the world. And as a result of that, all of us 
deserve to be separated from Jesus. But God, in his great heart, in his great holy nature, generosity is a part of that. And in his generosity, he saw a way to pay for our sins. That's by giving us his son. By sending his son into the world to pay for our sin. To pay for the punishment. To pay for the the debt that is owed as a result of that. And because of Christ's blood, our sins can be atoned for. Our sins can be forgiven. But it's because of God's gift of salvation that we can even sit here and celebrate Advent and celebrate what God is doing. And so how does this connect to this morning's message? Remember last week, we talked about what it looks like to be resilient as believers, what it looks like to press forward in the midst of adversity. And we talked about that that resilience is found in a Christian community, that it's found in unity, that it's found in prayer, that it's found in scripture. But we ultimately know that it's found in the power of the Spirit in our lives. And at the end of that passage in Acts chapter 4, we saw that they prayed not for their suffering to be alleviated, not for uh, God to work on the hearts of, of the authority leaders, even though that's a part of it, but their prayer was that they would have boldness to live out the gospel, that they would have boldness to preach of the resurrection, that they would have boldness to represent and point people to the cross and to the grave, to the fact that Jesus is not dead but alive. And what happened at the end of their prayer? So Luke, an earthquake hit, and they received the power of the Spirit in their lives, and the Spirit filled them. And so what was the response of that boldness? How do they live out that boldness? What are ways that as believers we can do that? Well, let's stand as we read our passage this morning, and we're going to see what boldness looks like in one area of their lives. So let's stand as we read this morning's passage. Starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belongs to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus. (laughs) Lord, as we jump into this passage and as we talk about uh, generosity, as we talk about boldness, as we talk about... Uh, anticipating your second coming and how we are to live that out. Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, that your spirit would come and be present. That the word and the message that you've prepared through me this morning, Father, would transform our lives. That your scripture would come alive in us, Jesus. 
That as we hear from you, Jesus, may we act upon it. May we live it out, not as a a way to earn your love, but out, out of response of already having your love and living for you, Jesus. So this morning, Father, we are we're grateful for this opportunity. And we just pray, Jesus, that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So this morning, as we talk about this passage, if there's one thing that I want us to, to understand that as a congregation is this, that a spirit-filled congregation will display the reality of the resurrection through their generosity. When we think about the boldness that the apostles and the disciples and the people received, a response of that is they lived that out in generosity and how they treated each other and how they treated those and their brothers and sisters around them. And so this morning, if there's one thing I want to know is that that when the Spirit fills us, we will reflect the the resurrection. And one way we do it is through our generosity. Um, And so let's look at this passage this morning. So some of the things, obviously, we are to, um, to answer is, is the who, it's the what, it's the why, and it's the, the how, right? All the key things. And so as we look at this passage, let's, let's have a little bit of, of interaction. Who is this passage talking about? Who are the characters or, or the people that, that Luke wrote about in this passage? All right, so, yeah, believers. Who else? Apostles. All right, so apostles. Can we also say the needy? Right, that, you know, when we look at this, right, there's the believers, and out of response of that, they, they gave to anyone who had a need. So uh, we, can, we can just say those who are need. Um, and so the, the beginning of this passage, right, 32 says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that they had any things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so let's talk about this. What's the, the underlying factor? Or what's the word that we could talk about when, when everyone is working together? Unity. Unity. Right? And so the passage, what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about first and foremost unity, right? The believers were in, they were in unity, right? And they had everything in common. Now, here's a couple things that we have to talk about when it comes to, to this. Now, the full number of those who believed, right? And so if we're still in this, this idea that a movement is happening, uh, the scholars are saying there's anywhere from 10,000 plus people. When you think about the men that came to Jesus and you consider their wives and their children, there's probably 10 plus thousand people who are, who are a part of this and what is happening. And so the question is, is how could this many people be in unity? How could this many people stand unified, not divisive, not having anything against each other, but they're in unity? The only question to this is if we read what we read last week, right? Is the Holy Spirit came upon them, right? The only way that that many people can be unified is through the power of the Spirit. 
Because you've got to understand that these 10,000 people, they're coming from all across the world according to that time, right? And so these are people who've traveled to Jerusalem, who've traveled to be a part of it, and they have different cultures, and they have different identities, and they have different places that they're from. And so how could all of these people from different walks of life be unified? Well, it's the power of the Spirit in their lives. This is what a church looks like when they walk in the power of the Spirit. They're unified in everything. They are a church that doesn't consider anything their own. They had everything in common. Now, this doesn't mean that they were in uniformity. It doesn't mean that they looked alike. It doesn't mean that they talked alike. It doesn't mean that they liked the same things. It means that they stood upon the one thing that was important, and that was the gospel. And so everything they did was out of response of their love for Jesus and love for the mission of Jesus, which is the good news and the Great Commission. They chose to be unified on the important things. Here is a church that believed the gospel. Faith in Jesus is what unified them as a body. They understood what mattered. They were utterly committed to the same gospel of the risen Jesus. They were one heart, meaning that a great spirit of love permeated the church. But here's the one thing that they understood the most. Is they understood that they were recipients of God's grace. They were recipients of God's gift of salvation. That they were recipients of the salvation that God provided in Jesus Christ. That they were recipients of the risen Jesus. And out of that grace and out of that goodness that God has given them, they responded with boldness by not valuing their possessions over Jesus. We talked about it in Sunday school today when we talked about Job, right? Job was identified as a blameless, righteous man who was rich, right? But what happened when God, when when the story between God and Satan and, and this interaction happened and God allowed everything to progress, right? Job lost everything, He lost his 10 kids. He lost his cattle. He lost everything he had. But here's the key with Job, is that his identity was not found in his possessions, but in his God. And as a result of that, he valued God over his possessions, and he continued to worship Jesus in that. And so this proves, right, that you can be a great Christian and be rich. You can be a a, a godly person who loves Jesus and have wealth and have possessions. But the key is, is how do you view those possessions? Because the difference between world standards and Christ-centered living is that God, as believers, should be valued first and foremost over your possessions. And so they didn't consider anything they had belonged to them because they recognized that everything they had first and foremost came from God himself. If God is the sovereign king, he's the creator of the world, he owns everything. And so the believers understood that, and they lived out of that posture of understanding that. They were unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When every member shares consistently, the church is united powerfully. We often think that unity will experience through our agreement on every minuscule doctrinal matter on childhood educational philosophy, or even should we all share a political party, 
But it's possible to agree on every point you have division in the church. The type of unity that Luke describes begins with a common gospel identity and a radical practice of sharing. When we find our identity in Jesus, that is what brings us to unity. That is what brings us to stand upon the one thing that matters most, Jesus. And so, how did they respond? If they didn't consider anything their own, and they stood in unity, and they were walking on the one promise, the one foundation of gospel of Jesus himself, what happens? Well, let's continue. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. With great power, the apostles kept preaching and giving their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus in their lives. And great grace was upon them. Church, I firmly believe that when you're faithful to Jesus, he will be faithful no matter what. God doesn't, doesn't change. What changes is the way that we respond as human beings to Jesus. I firmly believe that the apostles, they stood upon the one thing. They were obedient to Jesus, and as a result of that, God's grace was upon them. But what I love about this passage is this word power, with great power, comes from the word that we get dynamite. So think about that, right? This isn't just a, uh, you know, I lift something up. Wow, you have great power. This is dynamite power. This is this is, is life-changing power that the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection in their life. How were they given testimony? Well, not only through the gospel being proclaimed and the apostles preaching the good news of Jesus, but I believe that great power was shown because of their generosity, because of their unity, because of the way that they responded to the grace that God has given them. And so the church as a whole was giving testimony to the resurrection. The apostles, they couldn't stop talking about Jesus because they witnessed it. They, were, they experienced the resurrection itself. And the apostles, they were dedicated to the truth that Christ was risen from the dead. Christ's grave wasn't raided. The body wasn't removed. Nothing happened other than the fact that Jesus was risen. And as a result of his being raised from the grave, the apostles' lives were changed. And they can do nothing but proclaim it because of the power in their lives. But with great power and explosiveness, we can help but share about Jesus has done for us as well. When you think about your life and you think about how Jesus has, has transformed you, that Jesus has changed you, and we're all going to come from different walks of life. For some of us, that story is more powerful because of your experiences. But it doesn't mean that each and every single one of us can't talk about the power of the resurrection in our lives. And if we truly love Jesus and we truly desire to be obedient to him, then we should be sharing of the resurrection. We should be sharing what Christ has done for us. They continued to give testimony to the gospel through their preaching. But the church gave testimony through their generosity. The gospel changed their lives, and as a result, they were able to speak and give fearlessly because of their identity in Jesus. 
I've seen this so many times in ministry and relationships with other churches. I've seen communities change because of the congregation's generosity. I've seen people transformed because how the body of believers rose up to respond to everything that is happening. I know in my life, I think each of us can, can look at generous people in our lives who've made a difference. And for me, I can't help think about my youth pastor from when I was a student in high school. His name was Mike. It's a great name, by the way. Mike, do you agree? Amen. His name was Mike, and his wife's name was Kim. And they were some of the most generous people I've ever met. They would give anything. They would give the shirt off their back if it meant that they can have an opportunity to, to resemble and represent Jesus. They would open their homes to us as students if we needed a place to just go and hang out to process things in our lives. His office and, and my, my philosophy of being in the office is that he always had an, an open-door policy, that at any point you were more important than anything that he was doing. They, they, they gave their, of their, their gifts. The, his, his wife, Kim, is, is a great baker. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times Jesus was represented in a plate of cookies. But it's those people who experienced the resurrection of Jesus in their lives who've changed and transformed people because of that power. And so church, as a church and as a body of believers, I firmly believe that a response of the gospel in our lives is that we are called to be a generous church. That we're called to, to give of everything. And, and I gotta say this. <clears throat> you can read this and go, whoa, that's, that's communism. You can read this and go, well, maybe they were all pressured to be of one accord and, and to, to be equal and not consider anything their own but give among the needy. And by, by far, this is totally opposite of, of that. Because what we're seeing here is not a, a body of believers or a body of people who are being forced to give of their own. They are volunteering to give up everything they have for the sake of the needy, for the sake of the gospel. And we have to understand that. Is that Christ isn't calling us to, 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 to be a, a body where we stand upon and support communism. No. Christ is calling us in response to what the Spirit is doing to voluntarily give up for the sake of the gospel. And, and for each and every single one of us, that giving is going to be different. But while we're equal in terms of how Christ views us, it's okay that some of you have a lot of money. And what we talked about earlier is that with much, much is required. And I firmly believe that God gives an abundance to, to some so that they can respond in, a, in generosity to others. And the opportunity to give is amazing. And so when a, a unified church understands the needs around them because they are generous in their time and they're relational. When churches are all about releasing their assets for the kingdom, gospel transformation will happen. As a church, we cannot stand back, and you're going to hear us talk about this a lot, we're not going to protect our assets. We're going to be a church that desires to invest in the kingdom 
And as a result of that, everything that we have is Christ's no matter what. And he's calling us to invest in his kingdom, not to protect our, our, our bank accounts while we are to be good stewards of it. We can't just stand back and say, oh no, we have to protect it. We got to protect what we, what we have. Instead, I firmly believe that if a church is generous and the church is all about releasing their assets for kingdom advancement, God will continually provide for what is needed. So a spirit-filled church releases its assets instead of guards them. So let's continue. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This was incredible. Among the thousands of people, there wasn't a needy person among them. Why? Because they understood that need. And as a result of their transformation and the result of response of the gospel, they did everything in their power to make sure that everyone had what they needed. Not what they wanted. It doesn't say, now everyone had what they wanted. It says that there was no needy person among them. And, and, and when it comes to standards, right, we talked about it this morning. Riches in Old Testament and New Testament times especially that territory, isn't necessarily found in the amount of money that they possess, but sometimes it's found in the property that they own. So in Sunday school, we talked about Job, who had thousands upon thousands of cattle and camels, and and he had servants, and he had everything, right? And so for many of them, there were people who, if we were to say rich, they were the wealthy and they chose to sell their land and other things they had for the sake of the needy. Now, this wasn't forced. Remember that. This wasn't something that, uh, the, you know, the, the police came in and, and, and jumped on them and forced them to do it. The apostles didn't twist their arms and say, you have to sell everything you have. No. Again, communism is a philosophy based on the equitable distribution of wealth among a nation's citizens and common ownership of all property. These in the gospel, they were rich people, but they were transformed by the gospel. They understood the great opportunity that they had to bless and be the church that God desired them to be. This is what spirit-filled people look like. They are generous with what the Lord has blessed them. They chose to live out Deuteronomy 15 when taking care of the needy and providing for all that they had. No one went without a roof over their head. They had food. They had clothing. This is a beautiful thing when it comes to the church being the hands and feet of Jesus. Church, I I firmly believe that taking care of the needy was never a government thing. When we look at it, it was a church opportunity. Now, unfortunately, years have passed and we can see where it's at, but I firmly believe that if the church continued to respond to the needy, there would be no need for government funding because churches would reach the needy, they would invest in the needy, and we could sit here and say, well, they didn't have as many people as we have in the world. But at the same time, how many churches do we have? How many believers do we have across the world? And this isn't about guilting you into giving. This isn't about any of that. But when we respond to the gospel, one of the ways that comes out is through our generosity. 
Those with money, they understood the great opportunity the Lord has given them. They understood that God has gifted them, but that they were responsible for how they, were, how they used it to bless. Nowhere does it tell, nowhere in the Bible does the Lord tell rich people to see all of their possessions and, and just to give everything and, and being rich is bad. Consider 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, which says this, As for the rich in the present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. Christ-centered people who have possessions and they have money, or any of us, in regards to what we have, we have to understand that there's great opportunity to represent Jesus. And the church, with boldness, representing the gospel, this is how boldness came out, is that they were generous, that they gave of their land, they gave of their property. It doesn't say they gave up everything, because I guarantee you, each of them had a house, they had a roof over their heads, they had a family to take care of, they, they had to, to do things. But when the Spirit worked in their lives, this is how it came out. This is how it showed. Let's consider a person that we're going to see pretty often in Acts. There's Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, here's a man who was transformed by the gospel, who had possibly, the, 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 many scholars think maybe this, this field was, was passed down in, in family lineage and, and all this property that they had. And, and I, I love what it says, right? It says a Levite, and so he's significant, a native of Cyprus, which means that he came from somewhere else to where they're at presently. And it says that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's a man. Again, if you had extra land and you had extra property, you were considered wealthy. And here's a man who represented Jesus. This is a man that Luke, who is fascinated by this guy, actually mentioned over 23 times in the book of Acts. Religiously, this man was a Levite. Nationally, he was a foreigner from Cyprus. His nickname means son of encouragement or or, or son of exhortation. This nickname embodied his life and his his ministry. He lived out of a a culture and a posture of generosity. Later in Acts, we read more about Barnabas. What we're going to see is that he invested in the lives of young believers. He had a good eye and a glad heart. He encouraged believers to remain faithful to the Lord. He was humble and trustworthy. He was patient with the imperfections of others. But here in this passage, Barnabas' generosity is emphasized. Joseph, he didn't have to sell land. He didn't have to lay it at the apostles' feet. No one was forcing him to do any of this. But what we see is a man who absolutely loves Jesus and values people over stuff. Here's a man who understood the mission of Jesus and trusted in the apostles to distribute it in a manner worthy of the gospel. How many of you guys (laughs) would trust someone so much that you would just sell land and consider the price of land now 
and just bring it to someone and lay it at their feet saying, hey guys, do it whatever you want. Many of us would probably say, probably won't do that. But here's a man who trusted the apostles and laid it at the apostles' feet and he gave without an agenda. He didn't say, you have to use this for this or that. You have to use it for this painting or that purchase. He said, here, do whatever you want with it. May the needy be fat. This showed a humility, submission, and trust. The church as a whole couldn't have made it without generosity and heroes like Barnabas. The church has been sustained, enriched, and blessed by unsung heroes throughout her history, by those who have given generously to kingdom causes. When you think about who started hospitals and started these things, these were believers. This was the church that started these things. So how are we to respond? How are we to represent the, the, the spirit that Barnabas had? How are we to live out as believers what it is that, that God has given us and how do we view everything, right? It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be property. It could be your time. It could be uh, relationships. It could be anything. But how are we to live that out? How are we to understand all of this? And I firmly believe this. God gives access to some so that they can share with those who are in need. This isn't to say, how dare you become rich? How dare you make money? How dare you do all these things? But I firmly believe that as believers, God allows that so that the resurrection can be proclaimed through that. The difference between riches of the world and rich people who love Jesus is that they're going to live it out and they're going to represent Jesus and how they do it. Jesus' radical generosity towards us as we celebrate Advent should be a model and a motivation for our radical generosity towards others. We should live out of a, 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 a motivation and a model. We should reflect Jesus. If Jesus, being as generous as he, as he was to give up his life, our response should be, Jesus, what are you calling us to give? How are you calling us to be generous? Now, this doesn't mean that, that Christ is going to call us to the same generosity. It doesn't mean that, that he, he's going to call us to be uh, overly generous. I firmly believe that, that there should be boundaries and borders. For some people, God is, can call us to give more than others. But what it comes down to is this. The Holy Spirit must guide us as to which sacrifices we are to make and when to be generous. This is what, one thing that I, I struggle with. If you go to Christian concerts and the music's going and, and you know, <laughs> there's emotions flaring and all these things are happening and they're right in the center of all that, they're like, oh, by the way, here's some children. It's only this amount of day and all we need is your credit card. And they keep pushing it, and they walk around. And as a kid, I thought, well, if I'm really going to honor Jesus, then I have to go up there and grab one of those, and I have to take care of this child. But after a few months of doing that, financially I was strapped, and I had to 
cut the child off. And while some people may be called, and the Spirit in those moments are, are calling specific people, saying, you know what, yeah, that's just how I want you to be generous. I want you to take care of that child. Not everyone should jump up at every response to give in that sense. Because sometimes it's not necessarily the Holy Spirit driving, but it's your emotions. And so in those moments, you've got to step back and say, all right, Jesus, are you calling me to do this? And what's hard is because they're like, well, if you, if you do it today, you get this free t-shirt. And so people are like running to do it without actually praying or considering, God, is this what you're calling me to do? The early church, they lived out of a, a posture of prayer and everything they did was a response to what the Spirit was telling them. And for the Spirit leading Joseph and others to sell their property for the needy, is a response to what God was doing in their lives. Listen, not everything has the name of Jesus on it. God isn't calling you to give every time someone asks for it or even tugs on your emotions. Well, I believe that people should give in those moments. There's other opportunities and other things that are happening. Well, not everyone is to give money. I, you know, we are a one single income family that everything is budgeted to a T and we do give out of responsible Christ has given us. There are some who have access and there are times in my own life that I had access and God called me to give and to bless people with it. But here's the thing. While not everyone has money, everyone is called as believers to be generous. So what is Christ calling you to be generous with? For some, it's money. For some, maybe you've been thinking about it for a while, but Christ is calling you to be generous with your time and get involved in a ministry or get involved with, with something that's happening in our community. Maybe for others, maybe Christ is calling you to be generous in terms of, of there's someone he's calling you to disciple and, and we are to respond in that. And I want to encourage you to listen and to be obedient. Because I guarantee you the result will be more fulfilling than guarding that. Biblical sacrifice flows out of love. It's giving up something you love for something you love even more. So we have to balance this principle in everything that we do. The early church, they loved Jesus more than their possessions. And they considered that all of Jesus, and so they responded out of that. May we be a people who look for ways to give generously, sacrificially, and gladly. May the truth of the resurrection and the deeper grasp of Christ's grace make us like Barnabas. May such generosity lead to a wonderful experience of unity. And I love what J.D. Greer says. I believe the life that most glorifies God in the age in which we live is one wherein you live sufficiently and give extravagantly. I believe you will be content to live simply, taking great pleasure in finding contentment in things that don't consume a lot of your resources as you, are moved by the, as you are moved by the love of Christ for yourself and others. You probably won't be able to think of anything you'd rather do with your money than see churches planted, people saved, the oppressed delivered, and the poor fed. Church, Christ is calling us to live out the gospel. He's calling us to represent Jesus in a way that we do it is through generosity. 
The early church, the scripture said that no one was in need because they continued to give when those needs arise. Now this is going to require us to, to be in relationship with each other because when you look at this, a lot of this does consider just the church, the needy in the church. And so they had to understand each other. They had to know the needs that were happening, which is why I love a fund that we have here at the church called the Compassion Fund. We have a fund, like look, as believers, if you're struggling and there's a need, like we want to help you. We want to be faithful with God, what God has given us. And so we lay funds aside specifically to help those who are in need. And so if there is a need or if there is something happening that will represent Jesus and will proclaim his name even to believers, we want to be a part of that. But as, as Christians, as Christ's followers, as people who understand the generosity that God has given us through sending his son, we're going to respond with a culture and a spirit and a posture of generosity in our lives. So what is it? What is Christ calling you to do? Let's pray. Lord, as we spend some time praying, Lord, I just want to lift up those who are in need. Maybe there's someone here who is in a need, but they're afraid or they're embarrassed uh, to bring it forth to someone. Look, having a need is not something to be embarrassed about. We all have them. When we think about all the needy or the poor or the homeless and we see people on the side of the street with, with the signs and, and all these things are bringing up in us. Whether, and, and unfortunately, a part of that is, is we're driven by politics and we're driven by things. And so we look at that going, you should have worked harder or he shouldn't have gotten involved with that. And as a result, he is where he's at. Well, those things may be true. We have to consider the reality that we all have needs. And it just takes one wrong moment or one wrong decision and we can end up like the person who is holding a sign on the end of a corner. Or we can end up like someone who, who needs their, their rent paid or else they're going to be living on the streets and they're going to be homeless. Or, or maybe... Uh, there's things to do with their children and they can't afford um, medication um, and all these things happening. And, and we can look at that and go, um, and, and we can stand here and go, well, the government shouldn't give them money. But in humility, when we look at that, we have to understand that at any point we can be put in that situation. But I love the response of the early church that understood those needs and they fulfilled them, whether it was food or clothing or financial struggles or a roof over their head or something else. Like the early church responded in ways that Christ is calling the church to represent. The difference 
between government giving and the church's generosity is one is about themselves and the other is about Jesus. So as a church, what is Christ calling us to to be a part of? How is he calling us to, to release and be generous of our assets? As individuals and believers, what is Christ in this moment? Maybe something's coming up. Maybe there's the Spirit is stirring in something in you, and you're here going, man, Lord, is this of you? And if it is, Lord, help me to respond. Help me to be obedient. Empower me to stand with boldness to do this. Which I'm glad that we have ministries in our area like Love, Inc., who does respond to those. And as churches, we can partner and collaborate to make sure that people don't go without need. And in the end, they see Jesus. But I told you when we started this series that Christ is going to call us to do bold things. And so what is it? How is Christ calling us to respond as a result of the gospel in our lives? Jesus, speak. Maybe listen, Lord. Lord, what are you calling for us as a body of believers to give to? How are you calling us to be generous? How are you calling us to represent the resurrection of Jesus? Lord, maybe there's a specific person in their church. Lord, show us. Maybe there's something in our community that you're calling us to give to. Maybe there's a greater need that we're not aware of. Lord, in the end, Father, this isn't about forcing us to do it. It's not guilting us into it, Jesus, but it's about responding to the goodness that you've given us. God, the early church responded because of what you've done for them. May we represent you, Father. May we be empowered and filled with your spirit to represent you. May we give you glory in that. So Lord, speak. In this season of Advent, in this season, Father, may it not just be a season of generosity, but Father, may it be our livelihood, may it be what we're known as, and, and, and may our identity first and foremost be found in you, but when people see us, may they see the resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so as we close out our service this morning, we're going to introduce a new song. And I thought it great to introduce a new song through a video, through hearing it. But the song fits because it's called The Goodness of God. Because of Christ's goodness, we worship him, we serve him. Because of his goodness, we're transformed. And so I want to invite you to stand as we sing this song this morning.